Hello, Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, today I have a guest by the name of Jack B. He's been sober for some 45 years. Uh, we had a little bit of talk about that, which is kind of interesting. Uh, he came in pretty young, and so did I. So I kind of look forward to hearing his story. I'm sure there's going to be some commonalities and some differences. And it's just uh, always a pleasure to hear another uh, person in recovery story. So, Jack, thank you so much for joining us here on Beyond Belief Sobriety. It's good to have you. Yeah, my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it. So, forty-five years. <laughs> so, so t- tell me about that. Um, when did you When did you start having a problem with um, When did you first recognize you had a problem with drinking and get yourself involved in uh, recovery? Uh, I would say it got pretty serious um, around the age of eighteen. Um, I turned sixty-five this past September, and um, just as a side, I always thought that people over sixty-five were old. Yeah. I've kind of I've kind of changed that to maybe now age eighty. Yeah, <laughs> I think old. Okay, we'll see when we get to eighty. Maybe I won't think that way. Anyhow, I was about eighteen years old, and uh, I had done about six serious years of uh, drugs, drinking, uh, crime, police, jails, uh, and then the last two years got to more of an emotional, uh, painful bottom, spiritual, emotional where I just began to think about suicide a lot. And, um, just, uh, it was, it was probably, uh, September of 1975 where I had had a real bad night with, um, with a girl that I was dating and I had roughed her up in one of my drunken rages, which would happen at times. And I woke up the next morning, never having a blackout when I was drinking or using. And, um, I remembered everything vividly and I loved this girl a lot and I, and I, I hated to hurt her. And there was one person I knew in the AA fellowship. Um, and that was my mother who had uh, been nine years sober. And I called her up and I said, do you think I could go to an AA meeting? And she said, do you have a desire to stop drinking? And I said, yes, which was a huge lie because I thought the only thing that I had left in my life to hold on to was drinking. And uh, I went to a meeting. Uh, I think I just went to one meeting. About four weeks went by. I came to Florida on a trip um, just to get away with a friend. I told him when we got in the car in New York, I said, I don't drink anymore. And within about two hours, I told him, well, I, you know, we should drink since we're going away. And it took took two hours for me to realize that um, I'm not going to be able to go to Florida and hang out for a week and not drink. And uh, it got uh, just about five days into my trip in Florida, and I had a half a can of beer on a uh, uh, morning, and I just told the guy, I said, we got to go home. I, I knew that I was at the end. And I went back to this AA group, and the guy that was speaking was 22 years old. He had a year and a half sobriety, and um, I asked him after the meeting if I could speak with him, and we, we hang out at my house for about two hours. And uh, it's kind of like a... Bill and Dr. Bob story of, uh, you know, they were planning on 15 minutes and they hung out for five hours. Mm. I hung out with this guy for about two hours and he said, and it was quote, he spoke my language. That's why I I got it. He got me. I got him. He said, you want to go to a meeting tomorrow night? I said, yes. And, um, 
I just knew that I had to do something. I was scared. I was living in fear. Um, I was had to be high and drunk to be comfortable. If I was going a day or two without drinking, I was crazy. I didn't know how to handle life. And um, so that's the time where one meeting led to another to another, and it was November 4th, 1975, and I've been an active member of AA for 45 years. I went to my home group meeting tonight, as a matter of fact. And uh, so been taking it a day at a time, a step at a time, and uh, very grateful for the life that I've had in sobriety. It's been amazing. You told me just before we started an interesting little uh, history tidbit about your mom. Can you share that? <laughs> <laughs> so your mother got sober uh, in... Sure. Yeah, my mom got sober in 1966. Um, in 1963, she uh, she... She lost custody of five boys. She was an active alcoholic, and my dad in 1960 had to take five boys under his, uh, you know, his parenthood. Um, and so my mom was nobody where mom was throughout my childhood. So she was on a drunk up in Canada at a, at a resort, and uh, she saw a New York license plate. So she got all excited and ran over to the car and said, "She said." Um, wow, I'm from New York too. Where are you from? And they said, uh, Bedford Hills, New York. And she, Oh, I'm from Austin. It's only 20 minutes away. And, um, so they said, maybe we should get together for dinner. So they became buddies. But that afternoon, uh, my mother was in, she tells the story. She was in the bar that afternoon by herself. The bartender asked, said, if somebody comes in for a drink, please let me know. I'll come out. I'm going to go have my lunch in the pack. So she sees the guy uh, of the couple that she had met that morning and gave him a wait and said, come on in. And she's sitting there at the bar and she says, let me buy you a drink. He says, young lady, I haven't had a drink since 1934. <laughs> and she said, what are you an AA? And he said, well, I'm the co-founder. <laughs> that was, that was Bill W. And the couple that she met was Bill and Lois. Wow. So, they hung out for a day or two or three. They knew that they only lived real close to each other. And I, maybe Bill saw that she had some kind of serious drinking problem, but he passed his phone number along. And so did Lois and said, if you're, uh -huh. you know, if you ever know anybody who has a problem, you know, here's my number. If you know anybody who has a problem. And, um, <laughs> three years later, my mom was drinking a quart of vodka a day, taking three prescription drugs. And she had one phone number in the program and it was Bill. That's the only person she knew. So, uh, Bill ended up stepping her into the program, and um, they became friends. Uh, Lois and my mom became friends after after um, after Bill died in 1970. So here I come along as a crazy teenager living with her because mm -hmm. my dad kicked me out. And um, so when I hit my bottom, the only person I ever knew NAA was my mother. Was your mom. And when I asked her, and I said, you know, do you think I could go to a meeting? And she said, do you have a desire to stop drinking? And I said, yes, which was a lie because I thought the only thing I have to hold on to my world is drinking. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a weird question, isn't it? Uh, do you have a desire to stop drinking? Um, you know, I, I, I was like you. I was young. I had a, My life was a mess. It wasn't that I really wanted to stop drinking. I just felt like I felt like my back was against the wall. I really had no choice. You know, I had to do well, something. <laughs> Well, I knew because the night, the, you know, that night that I roughed up my girlfriend, that, yeah. was, that was a really tough night for me to watch sure. what happened to her, the look of fright on her face. And, yeah. Um, I knew that I had to do something. So, so the only person I ever knew that I had one person call was my mom and my mom's only person to call was Bill W. So yep. 
the fun part is, is that I got to be pretty tight with Lois myself. I gave tours at Stepping Stones and she ended up coming to my first AA anniversary. She was at my wedding, which was kind of cool. So there is some family history there, yeah. which is kind of fun. So, so you started um, off in meetings in New York? Yeah. It's yeah, in I the was seven. in New York for 1994. So about 19 years, I got uh, a job to move to Florida. So my wife and my kids and I moved to Florida. Uh, I knew that uh, with great advice, find an AA group immediately when I get down here. Don't start thinking I'll find a meeting when I get yeah. down. And I did. And I got very active in the program down here in Florida, made lots of friends. And still keep in touch with some of my friends back in New York. It's amazing. Many of them have 40, 42, 45 years of sobriety. And they're active in the program, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. Have you noticed any changes? I mean, obvi- you, this is a stupid question. What have you noticed has changed in AA from the time you got in in 75 to where we are now? <laughs> well, I'm like a, not an old timer, a long timer. Yeah. I remember asking people like that, and they are, hey, it's not like it used to be, you know. Right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, I had found your podcast and your and your presentation on YouTube, and mm-hmm. I was very uh, taken by the fact that I was noticing a lot of the stuff that you talk about with the people you interview. Right. Um, some of the authors you've had on, some of the uh, programs you've addressed, but my personal spiritual growth has kind of moved in a direction of um, kind of left religion totally. It's kind of left the idea of a, of a, uh, a supreme being. And it's really moved to, you could say some agnostics, some atheists, there's kind of a mixture mm-hmm. that I'm still finding navigating my way through. But the thing that your question, the thing that makes me think about that is my concern uh, for the future of AA because um, there is a uh, serious amount of people that aren't setting foot in the door because of our, quote, religious background, which started way back in the early days. Um, the big book was written with a huge amount of religious language. Um, the 12 and 12 has got a huge amount of religious language. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I some of the things I think about, like I work I work in the field now. I basically got out of the regular business world. I started my own intervention company. So I work with a lot of families that are desperate for help. And I do hear way too often when I mention, you know, part of what we're going to talk about is, you know, recovery and possibly going to rehab for your daughter, your son, or your mom. Um, And then we're going to talk about possibly, you know, will they follow up and continue in support group meetings? And they go, "What, what do you mean support group meetings? And I go, well, you know, the place that works for me is a 12-step program, AA. Oh, no, 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 no AA. They would never do that. It's That's a religious program. We, we These are people who really either never been heard mm-hmm. about it or read about it, and they're already, no, 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 no. That no. See, that um, amazes me because, and so when I started in 88, I did not know that about AA. What I knew about AA is what I saw in the movies, and you never saw them praying in the movies when they when they when they dealt with an AA meeting or anything like that. I had no idea that there was any of the of the God stuff, but I've been yeah. told that by other people who got sober in the seventies, especially in New York, that it was less dogmatic, that it was that it was less religious than it is now. And New York now, I mean, the meetings now, a, a lot of the meetings aren't as bad as probably they are um, like in Missouri, 
for example, where I live. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm in the actually a portion of the Bible Belt here in oh. Florida. I remember calling a, pa- a pastor, a friend of mine, and I said, there's all these conservative churches down here. I was looking for a church to go to, and he goes, this was like 20 years ago when I first moved here. He goes, you're in the Bible Belt, you know. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm in Florida. That's in Alabama. That's in Carolina. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, rip, it goes all the way through. Yeah. And many, many churches are like that. But, um, yeah, so you know what, John, if you think about it, and I think about it, yeah, back and when I first got sober, it, it, it I don't know, it wasn't so much, maybe I wasn't aware, mm-hmm. but I don't think I did hear it as much as I hear it now. There are people who you would call very, hate to use the term, fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. And if you ever spoke up and said, you know, I just, uh, you know, they the made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as you understand him, that's great that as you understand him is in there. But if you say, you know, the, uh, well, I actually, I listened to more of their commentary and, um, even a guy I'm meeting tonight who I love to death, he's a great guy. And this is not a secular group, but he said that he was in a car wreck today and actually he was in a bad accident on I 95 in Miami. And he said he watched a car go smashing up against the wall. He watched another car flip over. He watched the third car hit a rail. And he pulled over to the side and realized there wasn't a scratch on his car. And he said, you know, God just put a, an envelope over my car. And, and I'm like, I want to say to him, do you really? Then what was he doing with the other three cars? <laughs> right. And, Why does he I favor you? I, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin his experience, but I, I don't think like that at all. I almost never have. But when I hear people say that, it's like, why did God take my grandson he got hit by a car and i'm thinking did god point that car at your grandson at the, at the grandson or did he decide that kid will hit with a car but not that kid and i'm mm-hmm. like so when i hear that i really want to speak up but i don't it's not because i'm scared i just don't want to ruin people's experience um so but no i think back to your original question i do think back in the i think in new york it's way more I hate to use the word too, again, because they, they, they put labels on things, but liberal, mm-hmm. I think, you know, when I actually married now, I was married two years. We had our first child when I was five years sober and we wanted to find a church. We were basically wanted, we were a family looking to find a church. The pastor had 15 years of sobriety. And one of the reasons we were drawn there is he was very open-minded. He was very, I had never been in a church like this where it could be God as you understand him in a church. Wow, this is cool. We like this. Um, so I did spend about 10 years in that church before I moved to Florida, but it was a very, very, um, liberal church, very open-minded, very accepting of people of other faiths and things like that. And, you know, Hey, if you don't really even have a God, you can come here. anyway. Right. <laughs> so it was really a cool place to be. Mm-hmm. It fit me because I never really fit into a dogmatic view of religion. Right. Um, and, uh, but it's has started to get uncomfortable in the last three or four years here where I know that there are secular meetings. Now there is uh, conventions that have people who just say I'm an atheist or I'm a humanist or I'm a non-believer, but I love AA. It's important. Um, so when did you so, learn about that? When did you learn about these secular meetings? Cause they've been around since 75. I, I, I had no clue. Isn't that amazing? No clue. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I've been able to, which I'm very happy about because I'm still an active member of my home group. I'm in a, I'm in a home group that I was at tonight. Um, I actually chaired the meeting out of the big book, but I picked something that had nothing to do with any kind of 
religious stuff. Um, but I, uh, I, uh, where, where was I going with that thought? I'm sorry. I forgot. <laughs> um, the, uh, again, just the, the people whose language talks about, I get a, a, a guy I sponsor. He's 28 years sober. He sends me a text every morning just because he loves to send these to his closest people. Mm-hmm. And they're all a language that I just want to text him back and say, I just don't, this God that you're sending to me, but I don't want to ruin his experience. And maybe I'm saying that because I'm afraid to talk about, I don't agree with any kind of this God stuff, but, um, well, it's interesting so that, so like, so from, um, so we've had these agnostic groups around since 1975. They've had them in New York. They even had them in Florida too, since the 1980s, yeah, early no. 1980s. But, um, they, all these different groups, they didn't even know about each other. There was no way for them to, they're all kind of were under the radar. I think, you know, some of them might not have, they, they I don't think they had like listings in their, um, central offices that designated them as agnostic groups or anything. Um, and they didn't know about each other, you know, and it really wasn't until 2014 when there was an international convention, uh, for agnostics and atheists in AA in Santa Monica that was that the first one. It actually wasn't the first one. They actually had one, um, in Chicago, um, when the, uh, quad a group started in Chicago in the seventies and they had a conference in Chicago I think late seventies or maybe the eighties, but it was, it was a smaller one. Then nothing happened until, um, 2014. But the big difference between the conference in the eighties or seventies, whenever that was, and what happened in 2014 is of course the internet. So when we left that conference, we were all able to stay together. I mean, we were all able to communicate social through social media groups, et cetera. And from there, a lot of groups began to um, start up, you know, after that first mm-hmm. conference. And I think the growth may have slowed down a little bit pre-COVID, but I think now with COVID, you're seeing a lot more starting up online. And it's going to be really interesting if we ever go back to normal again, if those groups are going to go, you know, <laughs> uh, um, in brick well, and mortar. I, I would love to be, uh, to, I know in my immediate area, there's not a group within 10 or 15 miles, but I did start researching that there are secular groups in Fort Lauderdale and yeah. Miami and Del, Delray Beach. So there are secular groups around. And, and uh, you know, would the day ever come that I'd join a group like that? Possibly. Is there a day like that would ever come up that I'd start a group like that in my area? Possibly. Um, but the reason that I think it's so important um, to have these groups is because I want to be able to tell, I guess one of the great things I've been able to do is, you know, the saying, take what you like and leave the rest. Um, I've been doing that for years in AA. There's a lot that I take that I love and it works and there's a power in the room. You know, the power for me is the power of the people in the room. I think you just had a podcast on about that. Um, but for me, it's when I hear, and again, in my work as an interventionist, when I hear people say, oh, you never go to AA. And I want to be able to say, why not? Well, it's the God thing. Wow. The good thing, John, is that I'm learning more and more that I can send that person now to secular AA. I can put them in touch with secular meetings online. I can recommend, and I'm not sure you probably know all of this, but there's a couple of books that I'm now referring to people that are, that are walking this path. One is the Hazelden book that 
is called oh you might know is it, it. a walk um, in dry places is it no, a daily reader um, no it's actually 20 stories from people with 20 20 or more years of sobriety that are that are pure atheist pure agnostic real? i have never heard of that i've not heard of that um if i if i scroll my photos here because i took a picture of the book and i send it to a friend of mine mm-hmm. um but uh and then there's also um russell brand's book yeah I, actually, uh, I, I've not that read one. that, but I've heard people say that it's actually pretty good. It's it's amazing. Really? It's really good because if, if somebody's anti-God, anti-I can't go to AA, <laughs> they can do that. And then you also interviewed a guy that was fabulous. I sent him an email and said, I'm going to order his book. Um, what was his Is name? Is it Glenn? I I, uh, I, Glenn Rader? Yeah, Glenn Rader. Yeah, the modern 12-step recovery. And what he says there is that he's not doing this to close down AA. He's doing this to integrate. Can we integrate some of this thinking with AA? And it was like, wow, this is awesome. It's time for this. Yeah. And he, he, uh, I haven't read the book, but I read portions of it. And I know you, and I listened to the interview that you had with him and I was like, it's time for this. So yeah. I now have a couple of different books that I can refer to people when they say, no way would I ever go to AA because there's more and more people saying that. I also do a lot of you know, I, I, I study different patterns of, of things, but, uh, and I also, uh, am in a group, a men's group, nobody's in recovery, but a lot of these guys are spiritual seekers. Two of them are, um, are, uh, hospice chaplains and, um, they, they keep me in, in, uh, informed on the, what's called nuns in the religious faith, N-O-N-E-S. Right. And the percentage, percentage of that is growing. And I even look at my own children now who are 40. And 37, they both grew up in the church. They both went to youth group. They both love church. But now that they're married and have their own children, neither one of them are active. I want two of the kids, their kids go to a Christian school, but they don't go to church. The kids are not involved in that. And my other daughter, um, you know, she married a guy of a different faith. So I don't anticipate that they're ever going to be active. When they say the amount of nuns, mm-hmm. the percentage that's growing. So, those are a lot of the people do that are 20, 30 years old. I don't know what you call them, millennials or Gen Xers or whatever, <laughs> but those are the people too that when they have a problem with alcohol or drugs and they're looking for a recovery program, they're not going to have a whole lot of, quote, religious belief, and they're going to run to the hills uh, when they walk into an AA meeting and hear what's going on and look at the steps um, and hear the big book being studied, you know, a book that's I know. almost 100 years that's old. That's the thing there. Um, and I don't want to overgeneralize. That's concern about AA for the future. Exactly. I don't want to overgeneralize with the younger generation, this, this, the kids that are coming up in the 20s and the 30s. But my experience from what I've seen in my own group, they look at the big book and it's ridiculous. They really don't yeah. want anything, especially the women. They want nothing to do with it. <sighs> <laughs> they want yeah. nothing to do it's, with it. I actually tried to have a meeting. I actually tried to have a meeting at our group. I regret this. And I hope nobody got drunk over this. <laughs> but I tried. I thought I I thought, you know, these we have we have this group. We have all these people that have never been to a regular AA meeting. They've never read the big book. They don't want to read the big book. They don't know anything about AA history, right? So I thought it might be nice for these people to have a little bit of his knowledge, a little bit of history behind AA so that they can understand why we have these secular meetings. So I thought I'm going to bring out this big book and I'm going to, I'm going to teach it like it's history. Right? So I had this, I had this meeting and I actually had lesson plans drawn up and everything. And I would, I, 
was awful. Anyway, it didn't go over too well. They did not like that book. They saw no reason to read it or study it. And you know what? I don't blame them. Um, but then I know there are younger people that think it's great. When I'm, but I think that by and large, if you give somebody a book that's 80 years old, if that shit, it was 50 years old when I had it, when I, and I thought it was old right. at the time. You know, so well, if, that's a scary thing for me. If that's still the main text that it's people not, are, it's are a, grabbing onto, how are we going to survive the next 10, 20, 30 years? But somebody like Glenn Rader, that book, yeah. if I bought that to my home group and I said, why don't we read this and kind of said, oh, it's not, it's not AA approved. It's like, oh, whoa, we can't do that. It, it would freak out. Um, actually, there was a, a something I wanted to share with you in the 2015 Atlantic convention. I do believe a internationally is coming to grips with the fact that when you close a meeting with the Lord's prayer, the our father, which is a hundred percent Christian prayer, Christian and Protestant. They use the Protestant version too. (laughs) Yeah. I haven't said that prayer in a long time. Even when we were holding hands after meetings, I just kind of bow my head in respect, but, the language of that is so Christian and I have friends that are not Christian. I have friends that are Jewish in AA. I have yeah. friends that are Buddhist in AA. I have friends that are atheists in AA and agnostic. So when I brought it back to my home group that they closed all the meetings in 2015 in Atlanta with the responsibility statement, um, no, our father. And I asked the group if they would consider. So we took a group vote. I think there was 15 people that said, no, we got to keep the Our Father. And two people said, yeah, let's do the responsibility statement in honor of people who might not pray like that. You would have thought I came in and said, let's all drink uh, 3.2 beer <laughs> right. because we probably won't get too drunk. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Right. The, the resistance, the fear, you could see it. Well, we voted again six months later. And it was about 11 to five, hmm. and, you know, so I ended up because of COVID with six or seven guys and got one gal and six guys. We started a new group so we could go meet in person again because they wanted to stay on Zoom and we didn't and all that. So I don't have to go into that story. But when we sat down and said, how do we want to structure our meeting? Two things. One was, let's not read how it works, because we yeah. do that in Florida, and it takes forever. It does take forever, and, and it's, it is about, annoying. How about we close the meeting in honor of people who are not Christians? Why don't we do like they did in the 2015 convention? Close the meeting with the responsibility statement, mm-hmm. and all six of these people said, yeah, I'm in with that. So now, my new home group, we read the responsibility statement at the end, there is no our father. One woman got really offended when she came for the first time. She said, How come you don't say the Lord's Prayer? Oh, wow. And I told her, I said, we're trying to respect everybody who might be of a different faith or maybe an agnostic or an atheist. It's not really fair, do you think, to be able to have... And people are going to run for the hills that don't that don't hear it that way, which is a lot of people. So Yeah, they will. We, we need to... We need to... So the responsibility statement is now read, which is phenomenal because it's really... <laughs> There's no language in that that can turn anybody off other than we want the hand of AA to be there when, you know, when needed. So, yeah. So Jack, what, what, what got think, you? And that was AA's, that was AA's somehow somebody sat down in 2013 when they were planning yeah. the Atlanta convention and somebody must have said, you know, 
Maybe we shouldn't close with the Our Father. I have a sense that uh, the General Service Office of AA um, would like to move the fellowship a little bit, a little bit more into uh, away from the dogmatic religious language and so forth. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I think there, I think, I think sometimes they're afraid of the general fellowship, you know, and and and, de- and dealing with it. And plus, Huge the way the AA is a big thing. and the way AA is set up anyway, it's really kind of decentralized. There is no, there is no person who can say we're going to start doing things one way i mean that's just not the way it is but um yeah the i i have it was it the grapevine it seems i think it was the grapevine that came out with an article or maybe it was i i read something maybe it was in um one of the um um newsletters that gso prints out but they had a question about the lord's prayer and the how and the reading of how it works and the question was, would you blame somebody for thinking that we're a religious organization? <laughs> you know, if this is what they're, they're, their first time in the meeting and, and you're telling them there is one who has all power, that one is God, may you find him now. And then you close by holding hands and praying. Right. You know? And God could and would if you were stuck. Yeah. So I, anyway, I, I can't remember when that was, but I, but I've seen little, little, uh, movements here and there. Well, the grapevine is the grapevine is moving a little bit, as well as I think I agree with you. I think the fellowship in general knows that something has to be done. Yeah. Uh, but boy, is it scary! It's fear. It is. Um, They're talking about book. toying with the, the big book. book, which is a mistake. They're talking about toying with the big book. Maybe we should modernize the language or whatever. No, just leave it alone. Do some, start something new if you're going to do that. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I just I just thought of the book, John. It was Hazelden. It was a compilation of 20 people who wrote to the grapevine, and they compiled these stories and put it in a book called One Big Tent. Oh, okay, I know and that book. Available. Yeah, that book was it's that book. available at Hazelden. And it's amazing how many people flat out, I've, I've never been. That's a grapevine a book. I've always, I've always, yeah, it's grapevine. And I, and so I've shared this with people, and they're like shocked, like, "Wow, this guy's got forty years, and he he's been an atheist since his first day of recovery." Yep. Um, but the idea that they can still stay in AA, still go to the meetings, and that's what I've been doing—it's kind of like it's okay. I'm still comfortable in what I get out of AA, but will I switch to secular down the road when COVID's over? There's a great chance I'm gonna I'm gonna travel around, and, and it's especially because I'm gonna be retired soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to try some of these meetings. I want to fellowship with some people that, but I mean, just the fellow tonight that told that story about God put a cover over his yeah. car. Yeah. And what about the, the three other cars that like totally smashed up? I'd like, what was God up there pointing the car pointing? I'm and curious. A lot of people that believe that way. I'm curious, Jack, when did you begin going down this road questioning the all of this and becoming interested in a secular way of the, the the interest really strong has been since i've had a little more youtube time uh-huh. uh, and, and 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 website time in the last year and a half okay when have i ever been thinking that i don't buy into all of the religious language in aa that goes back for years and years and years yeah i mean like ever since i was maybe a couple years sober and i started going it's he in the big book. Everything is he. That's weird. And um, and yeah, God could and would if he were sought. So what about somebody who doesn't believe in God? You know, yeah. I had always been thinking that, but my personal journey 
has done a shift in the last like year and a half that I still love AA. I still sure. love fellowshipping with people in the program. I, I still have great friends that are quote believers, great friends. I mean, deep heart sure. friendships. Um, but would I like to fellowship with some people that are secular and the people who see the program in that way? Yes, I would. Would I, am I ready to go to a convention? Not sure, but, uh, right. but I, there are some groups around here. I know there's probably within 30 miles of me, probably six or eight groups that I found just went on a search and I went, wow, there's a whole bunch of secular groups around here. Um, again, with COVID it's yeah. thrown a little of that off. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, so I, my background is I, I didn't grow up in a religion at all. Um, my, my parents are actually originally from Florida and so they grew up in the Baptist church. Um, but when they, they, my father joined the army and they left Florida, they never looked back and they, um, I think when my dad came back from Vietnam, that was the end of church for us. And so I grew up without any religion whatsoever and I knew nothing about it. Um, I did take a class to learn something about it. I took a class in a community college, but when I got, when I got to AA and I was hearing all this bizarre stuff and the group that I went to was, um, mostly Catholic people, <laughs> you know, and they, and they were kind of used to all this kind of stuff. Um, I did feel a bit like a, a, of an outsider, but in my own brain, I was, I was, I was, I was interpreting this stuff, you know, I think subconsciously, but I was just trying to figure it out on my, on my own. And I, and it wasn't for another 25 years that I was able to come out openly and tell people, no, this is what I think. And I am an atheist. And that, that was a different deal. But for a long time, I was just, I didn't, I didn't push anybody in the group and I just kind of kept it in internal, internalized everything. But I want to also ask you, Jack, about, um, interventions and, um, and, and the people that you're meeting and how that might've impacted you too. But can you tell me a little bit about an intervention? I've never actually spoken with an interventionist before. Well, I was uh, certified and trained about 10 years ago when I left the business world. And um, I, I researched the various different types of interventions because I knew that there were different kinds. And when I found the one that I liked, that's where I went and got trained. And it's called a RISE intervention. So it's, there's three things that are way different than what people see on cable TV or Dr. Phil. <laughs> the first is it's an invitational model. So the addict alcoholic is invited to attend a family meeting. So they're not shocked or surprised. There's no ambush. Okay. They, they know to come or they can choose to come or not, because if they don't, the family is already committed that they're ready to start working on a whole new process to be able to learn how to live their life, learn how to stop enabling, learn how to uh, change the rules. The family's already the family decided. They're going to change. So when, right, they, when right. you invite the addict or the alcoholic, he, they know when they're coming into it that they're going to be talking yeah. about their drinking. Yeah, so, well, but we also, I also train the family on how to say, you know, after they take 10 minutes, the mom and dad's on the phone and they tell me how destroyed uh, their son is and they're afraid he's going to die and he got arrested. And, you know, when he was 12, they found pot in his room and then it goes all the way to now the kid's 24. I say, do you mind if I stop you for a second? And they go, yeah, what do you mean? And I say, um, mom, let me start with you. How are you doing? And I swear, John, 
50% or more start crying immediately. Uh-huh. They don't even know me. They just, they just got my name from a referred therapist or treatment center or something like that. And mom will start crying and going, I lay awake at night. She didn't come home again. I'm afraid this is it. She's going to be dead. And the mom is crying. And then I say to dad, you know, dad, how are you feeling? What, what can you tell me about you, not your daughter? Cause you guys could probably talk for another hour about your daughter. And dad will start talking and he's either really hurting or he's really angry. And I said, well, how are you two doing together? And they said, we're not doing good at all because my wife wants to do this, which is totally different than what I think we should be doing. And I say, are there any other children in your family? And they say, well, our daughter's at college in Orlando. Well, how's she doing? Oh, she's so enraged with her sister. She doesn't even want to come home anymore. And that's what arises because the second part of, I told you it's invitational, but it's also focused on the whole family. Once we get to that point, I say, you know, it sounds like all of you guys could, be, could use some help. And after they've told me that and they're crying and they're angry, they go, you're right. We wow. all need help. And that's, the, that's this type of intervention because you're not really focusing on the addict. You're focusing on the family. The family is the patient. Sure. And that's really, that's the difference in this training. And then they have to commit to a six-month process of working together for six months. The family we're does? Not come in and amb- yep. We're not going to come in and ambush your daughter and, and, and get her into a rehab and say, all right. Good job. Good luck to you people. No, we have to go down this path while your daughter's in rehab, if she goes or why, when she starts going meetings, mom and dad are going to have to be going to Al-Anon. They're going to have to be reading certain books that I've been giving them. They're going to have to start their own yoga practice or prayer and meditation practice, whatever. I give them choices and say, you choose, but you need to do some stuff for yourself and leave your daughter alone. She, you're not going to, you're powerless. I'll go back to step one and I'll say you're powerless over whether she gets clean or not. So let's get to work on you guys and you're going to help your daughter because she's going to realize that you're working on yourself, that it's not just about her because I hold everybody accountable in these things for six months. If mom starts talking about the daughter, 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 I'll say, Hey mom, you're having a slip. What do you mean? Uh Well, you're focused on your daughter. How are you? How was your Al-Anon meeting last night? Uh, the book that you're reading, Codependent No More, Chapter Five. What, <laughs> what, what, what is in that? What is in that book? You told me you read Chapter Five last week. Remember? So I'm holding Mom accountable to do her own work. So this type of intervention is very different. The old-fashioned model was you meet the family Friday night, you get rid of the attic somewhere, you make them write letters that have consequences, and then the next day they say it's Grandma's birthday party. And the girl walks in, and it's not grandma's birthday party. It's her intervention with some strange dude like me sitting in a chair going, welcome, <laughs> could you sit down? Your family wants to talk to you. Uh, it's really, it's we. It's And it's done in love and transparency and openness, not deceit and lying and sneaking to get that person to come in a room. So it's very different. It's called yeah. the rise. I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big disciple of that model because sometimes the addict, is the last one to come aboard. The family starts sure. getting better. You start shifting the family. Wow. That and would be gratifying little, to see yeah, that. That's amazing. The, uh, there's, there's little things like you, you get the family to commit that they will never get in a one-on-one argument with the addict anymore because usually the addict will go to this, the weak link to ask for money, to pay for my car payment, to you know whatever it is. And now mom has, if it's mom, sorry to say, maybe it's dad. Sure. You know what? I can't make this decision because the network, I have to check with the network. Jack, our interventionist, not our interventionist, Jack, the guy who's working with us, 
told me I can't make decisions without checking with the whole group. So she's off the hook. She doesn't have to say, because the rule is if you argue with an addict, you'll lose. One-on-one, you'll always lose. So if you you say, listen, I can't make a decision. I need an agreement with our group that I can't make a decision without talking to them. So So, I'll get back to you. Let me talk to the group. So do you get the family? It's cool. Do you get the family in a position where they're, somewhat stabilized before you before you send the invitation out to the addict no because it all starts at the first time that we get together in in person um but sometimes the addict won't show gotcha and you know there's it's 40 percent of the time we have statistics for this that have been done 40 percent of the time they come because they're ready to get help and they know what's happening yes and they've been told who i am and that i'm coming to help the family I wish that they. I wish that they knew how lucky they were that their family cared enough to do that. They don't realize yeah, that yeah, though. That's huge. I'm sorry, I interrupted yeah, then you. Forty percent. No, it's okay. Uh, and then forty percent of the time they come because uh, they want to argue their case that you guys are all nuts and I'm fine. Yeah. And then twenty percent of the time they don't come, and I have to get the family to realize if your loved one does not come, a they can call me. And say, you know, what are you doing with my family Saturday at three o'clock? They told me you're coming to meet with us. So they can call me. They can give, give your, your mom my number and give your son my number. Um, and they do call once in a while. But um, And I say, you have to be ready. The fact, if he doesn't come, we are going to meet for that first meeting. It's part workshop, part getting people to make commitments to make major changes in their life, no matter who they are in the family. And then we're going to every week have a Zoom call. It's now Zoom. It used to be phone. And we're going to invite your son who didn't come, and we're going to invite him to come. Um, Each week we meet, and if he doesn't show up, we're still working on your process. It's fabulous the way it works. I like it. What's it called again? Arise, A-R-I-S-E. It can be Googled, Arise Intervention. And, uh, you know, I can put my website up there if anybody wants to learn more there it's not a plug for that but sure why not um but it's really so different john than the other type of model but yeah there is there is a period say two months goes by and it doesn't happen very often 80 percent of the time the addict does come um and if they don't come the first meeting they show up at the second meeting but about two months down the road the family has to make a decision do we want to now go to what's called phase three which is the original intervention which is writing the letter, and it has consequences. Mm, so you do and get to that point. The, the, the wife that says, you have, uh, you have decided not to participate in what we're doing, in our recovery for our family, and so I'm deciding that I'm going to move out and get a separation. Or I'm deciding that you're not going to be able to see your grandkids uh, until further notice. Uh, or we're deciding that your, your job is in you're not going to have your job unless you go to treatment. So that can happen about two months down the road. And family as a group makes a decision to whether they think it's time because the loved one has decided, you know, screw you people, do what you want, but I'm not going to be a part of this. So um, then they get a letter with consequences. I help them write those letters. I have templates that they use to put those letters together. Basically how much they love that person, but based on what, We've known of your history, and we're all working on ourselves, and you choose not to be a part of this. So because of your choices, this is what we're choosing to do. And it's really based on choices. It's, nobody forces anybody to do anything, which, again, is a rise thing. The old-fashioned model, that person goes to rehab because they're forced and yeah. coerced. 
And two weeks later, 70% of them, John, leave because they're so pissed off at their family for lying to them, for ambushing them. And uh, But the ARISE model, uh, less than 2% leave treatment because they're just asked to go to treatment. I do that part. And I say, I'm going to suggest that you take 90 days and go to a, go to a treatment program. Um, and sometimes they say yes before I finish asking. Mm-hmm. Other times they'll fight me, fight me, fight me. I might say to one of the family members, well, what do you think? Do you think rehab would help her? And so it's all based on letting that person make the decision. If they say yeah. no, it then goes to, what about an outpatient program? How about you consider that? And a lot of them will go, oh, I'll do that, but I'm not going to a rehab. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. It's their decision. And sometimes it gets to the point, would you just try three AA meetings a week or NA meetings a week? Um, and they'll agree to that, but they don't want to go to a rehab or an outpatient. So the cool thing is, is that I build a bridge. I try to in that two or three hour meeting. And one time this happened, and I don't want to take too much time talking about this, but the one, uh, one young man, basically at, in the middle of the intervention, I always make it a point to meet them one-on-one when we take a break to check your texts or have a smoke or whatever you're going to do. And I'll go out on the porch and I'll meet with this 25-year-old kid and I'll say, look, I was right where you were many years ago. You're really brave that you showed up for this. Here's my phone number. And I put it on a separate piece of paper. I don't have, I don't give him a business card. If you ever think that you want to talk to me one-on-one, here's my number. Call me. I'm not here to help you. And so it builds that bridge. Well, this one kid, after he agreed to go to NA three nights a week for 90 days, you know, the whole family agreed to do their things, and he agreed to do this. He called me three days later, and he said, Jack, I know that this isn't going to work. i got to go to rehab. Can you help me find a good program? So, you know, you never know how it's going to unfold. It kind of makes it work exciting but scary at the same time because you don't really know how it's going to uh you know, when it's going to come down the pike. There's been one or two that I've been in where I'm in the middle of it, and I never share this with anybody, but I'll tell you. <laughs> I go, oh, man, I'm a little in over my head on this one. Wow. Because dad, the one who's the addict, you start thinking, this mom is sicker than the dad. And these oh. kids, these three, teenagers, these three teenagers that sit on the couch, oh, my God. Oh. we got work to do. I know. So sometimes I know. I'm like, okay. I just take a few breaths internally and go, all right, we'll get through this. You're here for good reason. So. Oh, God. I shared this story once. I went on a 12-step call. I've shared this a few times on the podcast, but I went on a 12-step call one time. And the guy, the guy was a bad alcoholic, and he was in the house with his wife. And as soon as I met the wife, I didn't give a damn about the alcoholic. She was so, she was hurting so bad. She was she was beaten, and she. You see what the disease does to the family members. It was awful. I I I'd never yeah. I'd never seen that was the that's the first time I ever seen anything like that. And I swear to God, I said, you know what? I can't do anything for this guy. Yeah. But we got her to an Al-Anon meeting, and yeah. that, that that was actually the first Al-Anon meeting I ever been to. I took her to this Al-Anon meeting. Oh. And I was just, oh, I was just amazed at how they just welcomed her into the fold. Yeah, yeah. It was just the most beautiful thing. Um, I don't know, though, whatever happened to her, if she ever went back to Alan or not. I kind of doubt it. But that I got to witness that was amazing to me to see that. But it just shows you how messed up. Yeah, I've had that experience a number of times. And you know that 
if they get to Al-Anon, even if the alcoholic is going to relapse or not going to buy in, the shift that happens in that family member by going to Al-Anon and meeting other people and starting to see there's a program for her or him, the shift that happens is huge. Yeah. And um, working with the family members, when I work with them for six months, John, it's almost like you become part of the family. Yeah, and when bad. we're saying goodbye on our... When we say goodbye on our last call, sometimes very emotional because I've gotten connected to these people and the family has done such good work together Yeah, that it's really cool. And even some of the, the non-addicts that make commitments, I had a dad text me about a year after he had made a commitment because all the people in the family said, hey, dad, you know, even though you're not the addict here, you smoke a lot of pot. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you make that one of your commitments? <laughs> You know, for Jack's asking everybody to make three commitments here, and he's looking around, and he goes, all right, 90 days, no pot. I <laughs> to my, my note taker, okay, would you put down, uh, Dan is not going to, no pot for 90 days. <laughs> well, a year later, Dan, who we became friends through this process, texted me one year later, and he said, he calls himself the Dan man. He's the dad. He says, hey, Jack, I just want you to know the Dan man, no pot for one year. Wow. He only Pretty committed cool. to 90 days. Yeah. But he must have seen that there was some benefits to his health and to his, he was 60 years old and smoking pot daily. His family said, we know you're not the, the alcoholic here, but you smoke a lot of pot, dad, don't you think? Maybe this could be one of your commitments. You know, one is quit smoking. One is change your eating habits. I mean, I have like 20 different things that I let people pick from. I say, well, what do you think would help you forget your daughter what would help you to, to make your life better and to grow and to stretch yourself? And so I get everybody doing different behaviors and then holding them accountable. I kind of become a coach after that yeah. first meeting. You know, it's amazing. Um, I don't know if there's a person in this country who hasn't in some way been touched, affected by alcoholism, either the, someone alcohol. in their family or someone that they know. Just today at work, I was talking to a woman I work with and she was telling me this horrible story about a, a friend's daughter who, or yeah, friend's daughter who was a nurse and is, and now has dementia from drinking. Got her drinking is so bad. She's got dementia and she's lost everything. And she, she, and anyway, she went through this whole story. Tell me about, about, the, about, the, about this woman. And, I just thought to myself, God, it's just everywhere. It's just everywhere. You know? It is. Well, that's why we say the family is the patient and the patient's the family. Yeah. Because the, the effects of one one alcoholic 60-year-old guy I worked with last year, I mean, he devastated not only his wife, his daughters, and the daughter's kids. I mean, he was coming to Little League games drunk. And then he would sit in a folding chair and he would tip over and he couldn't get up. And I mean, the little eight-year-old kids are playing baseball and there's my grandpa laying yeah. on the ground drunk. I mean, wow. And now they're saying you can't see your grandkids yeah, until you have 90 days of sobriety because you can't do this anymore. My kids can't be around you. Mm. So the devastation that ripples through the family is whew, yeah. huge. And then if you go back generations, <laughs> that's part of my workshop part in the first hour is to say, let's take a walk in time and kind of go back. What about yeah. grandma and grandpa? What about their parents? What, you know, what was going on back then? And they're kind of all sitting on the edge of their seat, like learning about their family history. <laughs> through a that I do. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, the suicides, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, men, the mental, the mental illness that's there. And my purpose is, hey, if everybody decides today is the day we're all going to start doing things for, for health and 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 changing and shifting the, the family dynamic here, you can shift the generation after generation because you can stop the madness. Absolutely, Your grandparents and their parents didn't really know a lot, and the mental illness and the suicide and the alcoholism and you know that you can see it's rippled through the whole family, and that's why we do those genograms. It's important yeah. for them to see that. Interesting. I'm so glad I asked you about this. I I find that really interesting, and I like the way that you approach the intervention with the family. Yeah, you know, it just sounds and what most people know. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. My wife even, and I, even people, even people like psychologists and therapists that I talk to, and doctors who want to learn more. They have. I've done a couple of workshops for therapists. And they're like, wow, this is great. I, I always thought interventions where you ambush the person. Yeah. I don't really like that. That's uh, lying. And ooh, but the professional community therapists and people like that, a lot of them don't even know this is available. They think intervention's uh-huh. a bad word. Yeah. The other model is good for television, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. When they tell the addict, we're, we're, I'll give you all you need. Just let us know what you're doing. Right. Right. It's crazy. Crazy. I really enjoyed this. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about or that you would like to talk about before we head on out? Well, I think I read a book that I was really thrilled about 10 years ago called Why Christianity Must Change or Die by by John Shelby Song. And he is a, a bishop in New Jersey that realized that Christianity, because more and more people are leaving the Christian faith, is such a profound book. But it makes me think about Hey, hey, you mm-hmm. know, why if, if the if the title is changed to why AA must change or die? Um, I think that 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 Glenn's book, Glenn Rader's book, uh, Modern Twelve Step Recovery, is a key to like this John Shelby Spong book about Christianity. Because again, Christian churches they're closing all over in 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 global Christian churches are closing huge, and then Christian church attendance. Catholic is for various reasons, a lot of times from the the behavior of the mm-hmm. the people, you know, the priests and things like that. But the um, the giving uh, at those churches is way down and people are leaving. I know a lot of people have left organized religion. Um, but I think about that with AA, you know, why AA must change or die. And I think if we're still going to use the big book and we're still going to use the 12 and 12 and not open our minds to the idea that, you know what, we can integrate both. For you people that want to live in a religious belief system, that's great. Go for it. For the people who are the other way, um, we need to allow them to sit right next to us and be okay. But people are scared to death to open their mouth in a a conventional AA meeting. So you asked if there's anything. I mean, that's something that I think we need to, I mean, I'm, 45 years sober, I'm 65 years old. What's it going to look like 50 years from now? Where's AA going to be? And I'm concerned because I love the program. Me too, me too. In the history of the program, I still go. I still love so many people in the program. If it does survive, I think it will survive without the big book. Eventually, people are going to let that damn thing go. I mean, after a while, it gets ridiculous. I mean, it would be like giving you a book that was written in – 1850, <laughs> you know, when you were starting out, it's just, you know, it's just kind of crazy. Anyway, well, um, Christian, Christians that follow the Bible too, because the Bible, 
you're going to believe what a guy said. I know. Uh, no clue. Um, yeah, so. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.